Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects, and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time, so probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello everybody, it's Ian here. Welcome to episode 88 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So, um, difficult to know how to start this one, other than to say that uh, occasionally you speak to a guest and it really knocks you back on your heels and you think, oh my God, this is taking me to a level of uh, information about policing that I didn't realise. And I, um, whether that's through uh, ignorance or just not wanting to go there or, um, yeah, I suppose the reality is that even if you spend 30 years in the police, uh, you're not going to deal with even a tiny part of what policing involves. Um, and uh, it's such a huge organisation broken up into so many different functions and um, inevitably, no matter how varied and full your career is, uh, you will only deal with, um, you know, certain parts of it. Um, so the person I'm going to speak to today is uh, ex-inspector Jack Frost. Uh, and Jack, as I explained in the interview, Jack and I were kind of um i think we met via linkedin which is one of my favorite kind of places to lurk around and um identify interesting people interesting subject matter as well as my new job um and and he kind of came to me uh suggesting that he might have an interesting story to tell and that is in respect of his involvement in uh running a body recovery team at Edgware Road Underground Station after the 7-7 suicide bombings back in 2005. And uh, I didn't really, uh, I've, inter- I've, had, I've had some very interesting and uh, quite gruelling conversations with people on this podcast previously, uh, notably uh, with Adrian who described uh, the 21-7 incident in, at Stockwell. Uh, also uh robert gallagher uh mbe who was the forensic um recovery uh scene to crime lead at the manchester arena bombing and uh yeah various other people who've described some pretty pretty difficult stuff but this definitely is uh one of was definitely for me anyway one of the more most grueling um, interviews I've had with a guest. So uh, I mean this really, really seriously. Please do not listen to this if you're in any way uh, of a nervous or easily shocked disposition. 
Um, there is some very distressing stuff in it. We do not talk about this stuff out of a sense of um, morbid titillation or uh, we don't talk about it in a trivial way. Uh, it's a really, really important role that um, Jack and his colleagues do. And it's something that takes place behind closed doors for very understandable reasons, as you'll find out for yourselves. Uh, they don't court publicity. And to my knowledge, this is probably the first time that someone who has done that job has talked about it in so much detail, probably ever, um, in order for people to, uh, members of the public or uh, people who are interested in policing or academics or whatever, to, to listen to. So I give you that health warning beforehand. Um, I came away from the conversation feeling pretty uh, exhausted. So, um, yeah, I don't think I could make it any clearer. The caveat with all of these conversations is always that the people who lost loved, loved ones uh, in those terrorist attacks or other terrorist attacks will always be the absolute priority for law enforcement professionals and emergency services. And everything that people like Jack do is done in order to support the loved ones who are left behind. As unsavoury as that job is, someone has to do it. So I'll get into the interview. Should be a little, hey, there he is. There he is. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good, good. How's your, uh, thanks ever so much for uh, agreeing to to come on the podcast. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of eclectic group of people who come on. So uh, uh, do, you, do you actually listen to the podcast yourself? Um, to be fair, no. You don't? Okay. Well, you know, that's going to be an interesting... I will start. <laughs> Are you a podcast person? Because some people... Not particularly. No, I'm too, I'm too busy in life at the moment still. Oh, yeah. Are you are you working? Um, what are you doing at the moment? What are you doing? Work so, uh, I'm an EMT in the ambulance service. Oh yeah. Mm. Oh bloody hell! So, yeah. um, did you have to go right back to square one in terms of training and all of that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh bloody hell! How long did that take? Um, so I did different phases, different courses. Right. Um, yeah. So, I I when I retired from the police in 2010, I went. To patient transport and then i went as a what's called an eca and then i uh went as an emt and right. did all the relevant courses and stuff and so i just remind me what emt stands for the emergency mechanism. medical technician all oh, right okay so is that the same as a paramedic then or is it well no not really um so if you call an ambulance you're, you're just as good get an emt as a para yeah. a para can just give some more stuff right okay yeah yeah okay. more intravenous stuff Excellent. So listen, let's um, just to kind of recap. Firstly, um, from my from my perspective, sorry to mess you about some time ago there because no, okay. I went I went through a little sort of phase of not sure about where the podcast was going, um, and and then I had to sort of uh, prioritize work stuff. So um, so sorry to mess you about, but you know, better late than never, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And and just to kind of re sort of um, recap. I kind of, I suppose, the reason why uh, we contacted each other. I'd put a, I'd put a sort of a message out, I believe, on LinkedIn, 
um, on the basis that I'm working as an advisor to uh, a BBC production company, a company working for the BBC, who are doing some stuff on 7-7 and 21-7. Uh, so I'm working as their police advisor. And, um, and you very kindly got in touch with me and told me that you'd been involved in uh, the aftermath of 7-7. So um, I'd really like to hear all about that. Uh, if we kind of, if we can kind of maybe um, major on that uh, a little bit later on. But initially, what I like to do is just to sort of go right back with people and talk about you know, their reasons for joining the police in the first place and talk a little bit about their career, really. So uh, does that all sound okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. And caveated with, um, clearly, when we come on to talk about your involvement in 7-7, the bombing, um, there's some going to be some pretty um, uncomfortable subject matter. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, kind of drag you through talking about things that, you know, if at any time I, you think, you know, I don't actually want to answer that question or I don't want to go there, then I'm really comfortable with that. Um, there's not, there's nothing that you can cover that will phase me. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess, you know, given your current occupation, mm. um, you're no stranger to uh, to blood and gore. So, um, okay. So let's go right back then. Um, when, uh, when did you sort of first decide to join the police and why, I suppose? So, I mean, my initial career as a, as a boy, I joined the military, I joined the Royal Engineers. Right. And so I was in the military uh, as a boy, as man, and mm. um, I ended up um, finishing my service as a uh, um, Royal Engineers diving supervisor. Diving uh, supervisor. Yeah, I, I spent a year on recovery with the Mary Rose. Oh, right, okay. And then uh, in 83, I left, did a bit of commercial diving always been interested sort of had a mind to the police yeah. and then as I came up as I was approaching 30 back then the age limit was 30 right so I it was make or break at that time so I thought I'll go for it because I'd been in the army and away diving and away from home mm -hmm. so I thought it I thought I need a bit of stability so right. okay combination of the age limit coming up and wanting to settle down a bit at 30 um, I went to Hendon. Bloody hell. So um, did you do your full 30-year career or did you? So when I went to Hendon, I was a month after I arrived at Hendon, I was 31. Right. I transferred um, seven years of my military pension with me. Right. So only I would only have to do 23 years to get my full pension. So, you know, sorry, I digress slightly here, but... Um, mm. Given the fact that you retired in 2010, can I just say you were remarkably well-preserved? Well, I'm 67. Bloody hell, mate. What, <laughs> what are you doing? To What's the secret? Is there something I should be taking or or, um, or putting on my face or something? That's very good of you to say, yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell, mate. You're a, you're a medical miracle. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, okay, let's go back. So you joined, you were a late starter then. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, what was your initial impressions? I suppose coming from the military, a lot of a lot of guys and girls who came from the military, the police was relatively easy, wasn't it, from that point of view? Uh, to a certain extent, it was mainly because of communication. I'd done tours of Northern Ireland um, and the, and the like, 
Um, so communication was a skill that um, many servicemen had when they joined, which is, as you probably know, is is sort of core to policing. Yeah. And um, so I, it was an anomaly going on um, because from my intake, everyone over 30 got sent to Brixton. Right. <laughs> I think they decided they want some older people there. Yeah. Maybe not experienced, but just people, looking older. In other words, people who aren't going to sort of start a riot every time they go out on the street. I never found out the real reason, but when we all got together, we were all over 30, pretty much. Um, so my first station as a probationer was Brixton Police Station. All right. Okay. What year was that then? That was 1987. I joined, okay. uh, went to Brixton, um, went through my probation and bang on the end of my patient, uh, end of my probation, I went to the TSG, for area TSG. Right. Okay. So, so I, Brixton, which was good, a, good grinding for that. Yeah. I had a cracking time uh, on on the TSG, and um, and uh, just um, just one thing. Sorry, I, I yeah. remiss of me. I should have covered this off at the start. We need to talk about your name. It's like it's Jack Frost. Your actual no. name? I was no, gonna, I was, I was christened Stanley. Right. Okay. But from the age of ten, I've because of my surname, I've always been called Jack. All right. Okay. I did yeah. think. I thought you know. Because it does. People do have slightly old names, don't they, yeah. to be fair. But, uh, yeah, so everyone calls you Jack still to this day. Uh, oh, yes. I, my name badge is a Jack. And in the police, I was Jack. Really? Even my name badge on my uniform was Jack. Really? Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. I just wanted to check that because it's, uh, it's quite amusing. But um, So, anyway, so you went to TSG, Territorial Support Group, four yep. area, as it was. Um, so I was, I, I was also four area, so I was Clapham. Uh, so uh, mm. a very close, a near, near neighbour, as you as you know. Um, so you would have been running around in carriers uh, in South London, kind of around the same time as I was working. Yeah. So my my inspector on the TSG was Bob Ferris. Oh yeah, I know Bob. Yeah, <laughs> everyone knows Bob. <laughs> yeah, I've read his book. Have you read his book? Uh, yeah, I've, I've had a double. He's, I still communicate with him now. He sent me a copy of it. Bless him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very amusing. Some funny stories in it. Mm. I mean, particularly well, he talked to because he worked so he worked all over South London, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's a funny guy. But um, so, so how long did you spend in TSG then? Spent um, about four, four and a half years. Right. Okay. So and then um, I went from there. I dabbled with surveillance. Yeah. Because as you know, TSG did surveillance, but. Mm -hmm. In any way, I ended up going to South Norwood. Right. And um, did my uh, advanced car. Right, okay. So I was punting the area car around South Norwood. Now I'm going to drag this up from the depths of my memory. Zulu November? Yeah. Hey, look at that. I've still got it, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> Zulu November. So and also, was, well, as so your area car was what? Zulu, here, there's a bigger test. Now, so Zulu 1 and Zulu 2 were Croydon, weren't they? And it, was it Zulu 3? No, Zulu 3 was Addington. Addington. Yeah, Zulu 1 was uh, ZN and um, Croydon was Zulu 2, yeah. Yeah, oh, bloody hell. That's a car that's getting a real proper blast from the past. So so quite a different area to Brixton and that is sort of yeah. more, more kind of, is it, would it be fair to say a, 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 a sort of a more um, Anglo-Saxon community than... Um, well, no, not with Norbury. Right. Okay. So it was quite ethnic. Norbury was quite had had a, a quite a huge Asian population. Right. Okay. 
yeah. Because um, I, I started my career in um, in Sutton, uh, Zulu Tang, so Z district. Mm. Um, did it for a couple of years, and as soon as I finished there, as soon as I got the day I got confirmed, I transferred up to asked to transfer up to Clapham. Because I find I find that part of London a bit quiet, to be honest. Yeah. So, so yeah. So um, so long did you spend um, racing around in the area car? Well, not too long because I'd already done my uh, part one and two Osprey. So um, after about, I think, when it got to 1999, I got promoted to Skipper. Right. And I went to Greenwich, Dumpstead. All right, All right okay. And did you enjoy um, so that? Tra yeah, transferred there as a Skipper. Right. Excellent. And it was whilst I was there as a Skipper that I, um, they, that something came out saying from each area they wanted, uh, they wanted um, one individual from each area to be, trained in body recovery okay so and, um, so so let's let's get into all of that then so um just to kind of remind people who listen to the podcast or for that matter uh, those who don't we covered um uh, in a previous podcast i spoke to an ex-colleague of mine lee warmby who was the west midlands police lead for dvi so disaster victim identification yeah um and anyone who wants to understand what disaster victim identification is all about, I strongly urge them to go back and listen to that podcast. Um, it would be probably quite good preparation for this podcast. Um, so back in those days when you were sort of get tapped on the shoulder for, for that role, did the DVI role exist back in those days or was this a different thing? It sort of all stemmed from Lockerbie back in the 80s, right. late 80s, um, whereby there was a lot of, um, of a widespread area, should we say, of um, disaster victims. Right. And then we had the Clapham train crash. Mm -hmm. And they realised that the management of the disaster victims was a bit haphazard. Right. Uh, the same as with the Marchioness. Mm -hmm. And people were getting troubled about how the victims were handled, identified, and the such like. Right. And as you remember, there was a, quite a big stink about certain aspects of the Marchioness, mm -hmm. uh, because in those days, they didn't want to prefer, preserve the whole victim. Yeah. And um, there was issues over <laughs> certain practices that took right. place then, which was, which yeah. was widely spread in the news and criticised. So, just so for those, uh, sorry, just for those who are listening who don't understand what that's all about. Um, so the Marchioness was a a uh, a party boat on the Thames, wasn't it? Yes. That, that basically uh, was involved, and I can't remember the exact circumstances. I'm not sure where, whether it was was a collision. Was it? I think a collision. It hit a dredger. That's right. At, at night, in the dark, and massive loss of life, wasn't there? And all sorts of lessons learned, and um, yeah, it was like, it was a public inquiry, wasn't it? Yes, and then it went on to some of the train crashes and some of the problems there, and Zeebrugge as well. Um, right. Some of the little things that came out of the Zeebrugge disaster in the past, which which all stems to them um, solidifying body re uh, um, victim recovery, right. was that um, there was there was misidentifications. Right. Um, so um, the Met decided that they'd put a team together that could be drawn upon to do 
disaster victim identification mm -hmm. uh, and body recovery. So we were, all went off to Hendon. We all got together, did a course. And we also trained to be CBRN, chemical, biological and nuclear right. uh, trained in body recovery as well. So oh, should yeah. there be a, a, a biological or, or chemical attack, we yeah. would be trained to still be able to recover the bodies, but in that environment. In a safe way. Yeah. yeah. So um, obvious question, really, but did you fully appreciate at the time what you were letting yourself in for? Um, I don't think I did when it came to the training, because I think like a lot of people, and as we'll, we'll get to the to, to more to the um, and I don't know how much you covered it in your other podcast is you had the impression that you rocked up with a couple of bin liners hmm. and started just, you know, collecting stuff. Hmm. Um, I didn't realize how intricate it was and how much was involved yeah. um, in, in, in that, which certainly came about on the seven sevens where I think the rest of the Mets especially counter-terrorists and those departments suddenly yeah. realised mm -hmm. how many other things that were needed in any major incident. Okay. So we'll get on to, we'll talk, we'll, when it comes to 7-7, um, we'll step through that experience, I suppose, mm. in, in chronological order, and we'll talk through in detail um, you know, how you came to be involved in that and what that process looked like. Um, but for the purposes of <coughs> of now, um, the course itself, um, how long was the course, roughly? Um, I'm going back a bit now, but I think it was probably about two two weeks, maybe. Right, okay. And um, presumably that was a kind of a combination of uh, classroom-based as well as sort of practical. I imagine it was quite a lot of practical stuff. Absolutely. And the forms, because again, people don't realise how much of the forms that you have to fill out. One second. I'm on a Zoom call. Um, oh, but let the dog out. Sorry. That's all right. Go on, dog. Go on. Go on. Oh. Reluctant dog. Right, so um, and 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 it's probably worth um, touching on the whole casualty bureau role in that. So, so uh, there's a number of different moving parts to all of this, isn't there? Um, yeah. There's obviously the there's obviously the initial blue light response to any major incident of that nature. Uh, there's a criminal investigation which is going so on. Before parallel, that, from the blue light response, you've then got the search and rescue. Right. Then it becomes, so the search and rescue part of it, after the blue light response, the scene is owned by the emergency services, uh, fire brigade, ambulance, whilst they're saving lives, mm -hmm. as we would be. Yeah. Once, once that's settled down, then it becomes a crime scene. Right, okay. And it's at that point that you and your colleagues would would then get deployed, I suppose. Um, okay, so let's talk about let's talk about seven seven. If you're happy to do that, so um, when that incident took place, um, what were you doing on that day? So, moving on from after the course, I then in 
2002, uh, I got promoted to inspector. Right. And I stayed at Greenwich. And I was early turn, which is the early shift at mm. Greenwich, because I stayed at Greenwich. Um, on the morning of the 7th, we right. all started at um, 6 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And I was the duty officer right. uh, working then. And then round about just after or just before nine, we started to get messages in the CAD saying there'd been some, some sort of electrical fault right. uh, in the railways and there could be delays. And then it turned into could be a fire. Mm -hmm. And then round about half nine, they started talking about explosions right. and then bombs. And then it was um, around about 10 minutes before 10 that the bus exploded, which confirmed uh, more public what was going on. Yeah. And then we started, as you know, in our operations rooms, all operation messages come through. Mm -hmm. They wanted all le so level two trained officers who are officers that are trained in public order yeah. to come back to the station. And also they wanted some officers deployed to help areas like Oldgate and central London because their, their um, relief officers were all going to the scene. They wanted right. officers to come in and cover the, still cover the general right. and leasing. The, the general kind of calls for service um, yeah. from, the, from the public. Okay. So um, at what point did you learn that your name had been picked out of the hat? Oh, I got a call. To... Um, everyone involved who was trained. Right. Um, we got messaged um, and told that we have to go to Scotland Yard. Uh -huh. um, so they put teams together because it brought up a few problems. Um, so they in the police, as you know, they for for everything they have contingency plans. Yeah. For different scenarios mm -hmm. and bombings, they have contingency plans. And as you and I both know, the book that they write for those plans is always only half written, and yeah. you finish it off when you're yeah. on the at yeah. the scene yeah. yeah so the first initial problems they split us into teams because we had the tavistock we had uh Allgate, russell square and edgeware so there's four different sites okay so for those who are, <coughs> so for those who are listening to this who in the very unlikely event that they don't know anything about it's this is the 7th of july 2005 um uh, four coordinated suicide bombers blew themselves up three on tube trains underground and one on a bus at Tavistock Square. Yeah. And the first one that went off was Allgate, the second one at Edgware, the third one at Russell Square. And that was all round about eight after eight fifty, nine o'clock. Right. And they believed that the fourth chap um couldn't get on a tube and was wandering around and then suddenly he decided that he'd pick a bus and it went off in he set it off in Tavistock Square by the medical center so because we have four sites we split into four teams and then in any, any major um incident or scene where there's deaths the person in charge is the coroner right so the coroner takes charge of all four scenes so the first problem I think we had is that they have to set up one temporary holding area 
and a morgue. Right. But because they're four separate crime scene, they needed four separate places to take yep. the um, victims. Yeah. In the contingency plan, Chelsea Barracks was one of them. Until right. somebody mentioned that Chelsea Barracks was used by soldiers who yes. carry guns that full have of, uh, full of firearm residue. Yeah. yeah, so that could contaminate it. So on the side of that, they had they were all rushing round to to get sites and suitable for the four different reception places. In the meantime, I I led uh, as an inspector. I led a team that went down to Edgware Road. Okay, so how many were in your team? Um, initially, there was about six of us. Right. So, um, SO13, the anti-terrorist team, was already down there. Right. Which this this is where a lot of the, the a lot of different agencies hadn't understood what it what everyone else does. Yeah. So you'll know a bit better than your listeners about um, departments and how. This is my crime scene. The politics of it, yeah. Yeah. So when I got there, um, they were saying, what are you doing here? They had no idea we're turning up. Mm. And they didn't even know what we did. So at first, we had a lot of politics about, you. this is my crime scene, you can't come on board and the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Till a few phone calls were made and people were told to just calm down. Yeah. And this is how it works. So I'm guessing, and this is based on my own experience, um, SO13 at the time um, had their own team of exhibits officers who were trained to uh, forensically recover evidence. Um, so inevitably, I suppose, there's going to be an overlap between what they do and, mm -hmm. what, and what you guys were there to do. So I, I'm guessing that was part of the the politics of that discussion absolutely uh, and they didn't appreciate what we could do for them right in any way it all settled down um and we went down and we created a uh, temporary holding area on the platform in edgeware road and there was two trains in the tunnel because when so the the bomber there was um mohammed khan who was the ringleader He'd just gone in the into the tunnel when he set it off, and there was a train coming alongside. Mm -hmm. So there was two trains in the tunnels, and they'd all the victims, uh, all the survivors had been taken off, and it was just the residue of the victims that were still there. Right. So once we'd set up, um, and we were talking to the um, CO thirteen uh, SO thirteen guys, they realised that there's a whole system of how to collect victims. It really surprises me that they didn't, they didn't know that. I know. Oh, there was other, th there, there was other things that surprised us. And I think it is in those days, SO13, because their anti-terrorism had pretty much were on an island. And I think the Met police sailed past them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose you... I suppose the scale of it as well That's was, right. was something that would have taken them, would have set them back on their heels mm -hmm. because I'm just racking my brains here to think um, that was the first, to my knowledge, significant, well, it was the first suicide, successful suicide bombing on the British mainland, wasn't it? Um, and it was certainly probably the first significant terrorist attack 
in the UK well, for, for some time. So I imagine there's probably going to be a, quite a few people there who maybe weren't, frankly, that experienced, really. I think the, the difference was the victims, because we had the bolted exchange, which was massive, yeah. that went off in the 90s. Um, but there was no real victims there. It was just mm. a crime scene. Yeah. And so what we were doing is um, one of the reasons for body recovery, apart from it being evidential, it's in light to the loved ones being mm. able to recover mm. um, the majority of their uh, loved ones. Right. And also, consequently, as we'll go into, is certain methods you can be you build up a 3D or a three-dimensional image mm -hmm. through lasers. And then as I'll come on to the recovery in a sec, but each part, uh, each fragment is GPSed so that within the model, every single part you can you can go in and see where it went. So you would see sorry, DPS, what does that mean? So it's uh um Positioning, you know, satellite positioning. All oh, right, okay. Oh, GPS. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. And so every every item had GPS. So as it built up and got put into the model, then you could see how the blast evolved. All right. Okay. By the how the victims spread out. Well, that's interesting. So that's it was of, it was quite fascinating. Of, and that's see. a piece of technology. So who who kind of who deploys that technology then? So that all comes. Um, Back then they were just doing it, but now every major, every major um, location, they've been there now, and they've they've got three D uh, models. Right. So you could go, for instance, the Buckingham Palace if it was taken over by terrorists, and right. you could walk round and see every room, every bit of it, without oh, wow. before you going in. Fantastic. Fantastic. And then once you're in there, if you GPS, you can put what you find into that model and see how everything went. That is really, I didn't know that. That's really Yeah, that's and it was early days then. Yeah. So another thing the coroner does is they decide what is a body part. Hmm. And on this occasion, the coroner announced that a body part will be anything bigger than one centimetre squared. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. So we have to then decide how we're going to do things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, so initially, it's a bit like battleships. Mm. Um, we will grid out the area that we're going to go into. Yeah. Um, the first thing is there was, we went for, we, we went in first and dealt with the victims who were whole. Can I, just, then, can I just pause you for a moment, yeah. Jack, just to say, just just to ask you, when you first set foot in the in the scene at the scene with your with your colleagues, um, what describe to me what it actually looked like in terms of so was it was it lit? Was it dark? If it was lit, where was that? Was that sort of artificial lighting? Uh, and what just describe what it looked like when you first went in there? So anyone who's got view of, so coming off the platform, you had to walk into the tunnel um, and you had to be careful because we had, you obviously you didn't want to contaminate the scene. So we we're only going, only going into sections that had been already either cleared or been used. 
Mm. And going into the tunnel, um, there was some lighting, but not a lot because they were still getting stuff together. We had torches and it was, it was quite eerie. Um, and especially with the main carriage that had been blown apart. How far down the tunnel was the carriage? I would say about 50 metres, 100 metres. Right. And there was another train beside it, which we we moved after a couple of days, um, moved out because that there was a couple of people injured, but there was no no one uh, fatally injured no on the other. Fatalities on the other train. Yeah. Okay. And then you had the main blast area, which was which was the concentration, which was a certain amount of carriages down. Um, so it was very very dark and very dark and sort of uh, I'd say it's like. Victorian England type right. atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, and um, so in, knowing that, so once we got the the uh, victims that were more that were together, um, we then had to grid. Um, so if you imagine battleships, you've got one A, two A, three A, that sort of thing. Yeah. And this is where people are amazed with a victim uh, or body recovery is that each body part, notwithstanding it's one centimetre squared, mm -hmm. has a four-page booklet, A4 booklet, right. attached to it. So when you... So I'll send, I'll send some guys to go and do 1A and 1... Uh, 1A and 2A, or 1A and 1B, and there's four of them. Right. Together with a photographer... Right, and what sort of size is each of these grids then, just to give us a, an idea? I'd say they're about six foot square. Right, okay, so quite small then. Yeah, because we're looking for one centimetre body parts. Bloody hell. So, um, so the team would get together, they would, ha have, they would have their protective white suits on and masks. Yep. And you go down into grid 1A and if you don't mind me being graphic, you, no. for instance, might have a have a hand yeah. in one A, and then you'd have a, uh, next to that hand you'd have a finger and a thumb. Right. Separate, separate. But not necessarily from the same hand, presumably. Exactly. So this is the point. You can't assume anything. Just because right. the thumb's next to a hand, you yeah. mustn't assume that that thumb belongs to that hand. Yeah. Because, again, from other scenes in the past they've made fatal mistakes that way so you then say for instance there was a thumb yeah you would go to that thumb and then you'd it would taken a picture of it in situ you record on the on the sheet mm -hmm. the team that's gone in and the body part described as in this case a thumb right you'd then the officer that's found it would then kneel in front of it or be beside it, and then they would do a video. My name is uh, Jack Frost. Um, I evidence this. This is my evidence as I evidence this is JF1. Yeah. You then tie a label onto it. Onto the body part. Onto the body part. Right. And then it would go into a bag. And it's a particular bag with all the that you can write on and add things on. Okay. And it's all got serial numbers on it, and that matches the paperwork. So, um, just to pause you there, 
-hmm. this presumably is the first time that you've ever done anything like this yeah is that right yeah that was the first live I'd, so we'd done so we'd done the biggin hill air crash so there was two planes that that crashed during the biggin here air show yeah so we'd done that um we've covered two bodies from there but that was nothing, there were two nothing plane crashes same, and you know nothing, nothing on the same scale as so we, we 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 sort of knew what we were doing with regards um having done those yeah just on a bigger scale yeah and um and again if this isn't a insensitive question um given that you were a very experienced police officer by this stage um had you dealt with uh i mean i, I kind of know what the answer is going to be here before i ask the question but had you dealt with pretty grim gory crime scenes and the or for that matter road traffic collisions or whatever prior to this to, to some significant extent i had and uh, notwithstanding in the military from northern ireland and such likes i'd at a young age, I I was introduced to that sort of scenes, and in the police, as you know, I was involved with March and S, right. um, not as a body recovery, yeah, but yeah. just on the policing of it. And you know yourself that we have to deal with some of the some of the um, uh, deaths, you mm -hmm. know, where somebody's passed away. We do a, we we do a please allow officer. Yeah, yeah. We go around there, and they've been there about you know four or five weeks yeah so yeah i'd had that in the past right um the difference with this is because it was so high profile right i think that um when you come in and out the station the press were there and you know the, the news were there and you had a lot of the um senior command interested mm -hmm. and also we knew that there was a huge presser pressure that people wanted everything all the people identified right and all this so we knew there's a lot of pressure we knew this was high profile and it was terrorism mm -hmm. so there was everyone was a, you know a little bit on edge okay um yeah so once you you do you do your evidence get your mm -hmm. video you put it in the bag yeah and then that body part is connected to that booklet right and then you could do a, you might be able to do a couple if they're small in that grid 1a then they'll before you move it they'll get a machine gps machine which will put the gps location on it right and that's for later to go into the scene uh, into the uh, computer module and then when you go out because it was very hot um in there and um there was this i wouldn't say it was it wasn't a flesh smell or anything like that it was more of a oily carbony type smell and musty right. that sort of went down your throat mm. and you took you will take the body parts out and then on the platform we had the temporary holding area where we'd have somebody would have another book which would log those parts into a book mm -hmm. and then they'd keep one copy of of the booklet and then the booklet will then go with the body parts right. so it took a couple of days till we got um freezer vans yeah. outside and they'd established the temporary mortuaries and how many people died at edgeware road jack um six well seven plus the terrorist calm right okay 
And, and um, were, were most of those people, um, including the terrorist, in a, a relatively compact area? No. So, in total, which will at the end of things, if I recall, we recovered fifteen hundred and sixty body parts. Bloody hell! Each one having a four-page A4 booklet attached to it. And how long did that whole process take? Three weeks. Three weeks. Oh my god. Oh, yeah, and so Khan, the bomber, he was sat to the, I believe, the left of the door mm -hmm. on the tube, and he had his device on his lap. Yeah. And he set it off on his lap. So he was blown down right through the bottom, through the through there, and he he ended up wrapped right round the wheels. Oh my god. So as you can imagine, it didn't stop immediately. So no, so there's bits away yeah. at the track. And very and obviously because we were doing the recovery, we were very quick to find identification which was another aspect that they were very keen on to yes. identify the bombers. Yes, that's a really good point. I was I was I was thinking about that earlier on, but you've reminded me now. So clearly in whilst you're doing this incredibly grim um, mm. but professional and detailed task, there's also a massive massive urgent requirement to identify mm. these individuals. Mm -hmm. in in order to establish if there's a wider conspiracy taking place elsewhere yeah. that, that we need to get on the back of. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's a really good point. So so when you find uh, something that identified can, that then, it's not a body part, but it's obviously massively relevant, um, that then presumably gets handed over to the SO13 exhibit tester. Yeah. Yeah, and... It sort of stemmed a conspiracy theory because we identified we identified the bombers quite quickly, mm. and the conspiracy theorist was there's something fishy here. You know, how did they identify these people? They must have known all the rest of it. But what people forget is that the bombers carried identification because they wanted to be identified, right? Because they're giving their lives to the cause, and so they want everyone to know who's done it. Yeah. So yeah. they all carried identification. It, what what there's lots of things that I find shocking about these types of incidents. Um, but the, one of the things I find most shocking is the fact there are still people out there today trying to argue that the whole of 7-7 never happened. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's great. It's absolutely, it's, just, it's about as insane as anything can ever be, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Um but, I mean, how do you feel when you hear these crazy conspiracy theories? What do you, how, how does that make you feel? Well, no, it, it doesn't bother me. Um, it's like any of the, it's like, you know, the, the nurse flat. There's always going to be people that come, you know, Diana was killed by the Queen, yeah. all this. Tinfoil hats. Yes. Uh, and I don't, so none of my friends and associates or people I in my circle, I don't, I don't, socialize with these sort of people so it doesn't bother. no yeah it's a form of mental illness isn't that I suppose it is um and the other thing is as you go one of the other things that we were quite keen to do and i still do it in my current profession if i go to um, the, um major crashes or um newsworthy scenes is that mm. we were very aware not to find out because as as people were getting identified 
they were putting the pictures of the victims in the paper and everything. Mm -hmm. So to this day, I have no idea who they were. Really? Because they were just body parts and victims. Yeah. Because if you're doing a job like that, you don't want to you don't want to personalize it. Yes, I can. I so can... It, it can sound a bit harsh saying body parts this, but that's all they were to me. And that's yeah. the only way you can function. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. So every seven seven, there's it's always in the papers now. You know, the anniversary of this and Edgeway Road, they have a memorial as they do others, you know, people go there and the victims, you know, who they were in the papers or anything like that. I never watch it. And as I said, to this day, I have no idea who they were. Well, that's a that's a fascinating thing to consider. Um, do you think that some. I understand what you just said, and I get it 100 percent is do you think that's the, the human brain's way of protecting itself? Well, I, I, I no, uh, it, it's a conscious decision not to do it. Uh, because I know, probably from my time as a police officer and and for the military, is if I so like as you if you went to a fatal, in your service, mm. you're going to two people that are killed, right? And you go back to the police station and they're just two victims, but then you read that one of them was uh, just about to have a baby, one was a, a lecturer and they left behind this, left behind that. Mm. You then delve back into it and they become people and and you then the human side of you comes in and you view them as a bit different mm. so consequently that one incident might not affect you mm. but it goes in a certain part of your brain yeah and if you start filling up that brain with stuff you that's when you start to have ptsd and all this sort of stuff yeah so for me and quite a lot of others we don't mm. need to know who they are because our job is to recover as much as possible for the loved ones to get back. Yeah, I mean, I never dealt with anything like the what you're describing here. Um, I, I dealt with some pretty grim stuff. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, even when I was an SIO and I would get called out to a murder or something like that at the, at the weekend as a GT SIO. Um, yeah, I can remember not feeling really anything, actually. You just, you've got so many, so much to do. And you've got so many decisions to make and you've got so much to think about that actually you don't give a single i i can remember just being feeling completely dispassionate mm. about about the body you know it's not feeling you know obviously there's a there's an element of you that you need to be behaving in a way that is sensitive to, to family and witnesses or whatever but um yeah it's a funny one isn't it how how the the mind kind of um yeah. Anyway, I digress. So, um, so you've got this incredibly um, detailed grid-based search, and that's around the that's around the carriages. Right. Okay. And it's this is taking three weeks now. At the, at the risk of 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 being incredibly insensitive, this is July. It's really warm down there. Yeah. Presumably, um, decomposition is going to start setting in pretty quickly though isn't it so it did so as we progressed we and this is this is um this brings into again how different departments don't understand what the others can do because quite quickly after about the second or about the third day 
we were able to, the, the second train, which we wanted to get out to give us more room, we brought the second train out and SO13 were quite pleased and they said, right, whilst you're doing your body recovery on there, we're going to search the top of the train. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, turned around to their supervisor and said, well, are you working at height trained? And they went, what's that then? I said, well, you can't put your officers on there unless they're working at height trained. As you know, that came yeah. in with health and safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, their attitude was, that's rubbish. I said, well, it's not rubbish because you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, who could do it then? I said, well, we've got British Transport Police here who are trained to work at heights. And that's above one metre. So you can't go up there. You have to get them in and brief them to do it. Yeah. And they went, oh, dear. Well, while they're doing that, we'll search underneath. And I went, well, <laughs> is anyone confined spaces trained? Oh, God. <laughs> and you imagine the faces of the SA-13. Like, like... And again, they had to get the requisite people that were trained to do these jobs because, as I said, the, the Met Police had moved on yeah. and they hadn't quite moved with us. But we got that out of the way and we did the immediate area and then we had to do like a fingertip search through the carriage. Yeah, yeah. Um, us and SO13. So just, I... just to pause you there, Jack, um, just going back, just very quickly going back to what you were yeah. talking about, the heights and the confined spaces. Again, for people who are listening to this who don't understand, there have been quite a few incidents over the years, haven't there, where people have fallen off things and ended up dying. Um, you know, and, and if you actually look at the height of a tube train, it's not an insignificant height, is it? And uh, and not only that, but it's you've also got uh, all sorts of other hazards to to think about and equally confined spaces. Um, anyone, I mean, I'm, I'm a nightmare. I'm extremely claustrophobic. I, d- I don't like being, you know, I went caving once. It was the worst day of my life, you know? <laughs> it was just the most terrifying experience ever. So if anybody's sitting there, muttering health and safety gone mad it's not health and safety gone mad is it it's a real risk for people isn't it it, anyway. it, it, it is um numerous thing, uh, accidents and things have happened and of course especially in health and safety now you can't do certain things without doing the subsequent uh training yeah um well when we were going through fingertips there was a an access shoot in the train you know you've got a little square that fits in nicely yeah. Got to that and I lifted it up and underneath it was a rucksack. Oh, bloody hell. And I went, oh, that can't be good. And I went, oh, everyone stop. So this is to, just for clarity. This is a like a trap door effectively in the yeah. in the floor of the train, which yeah. affords access to the to the track. Is that right? I, the tracks and some of the gearings or whatever it was. I, okay. All so I could if, see was the rucksack. So if you're, if you're James Bond or Jason Bourne, that's where you would be getting off the train, wouldn't you? You don't use, Probably, the, plat- you yeah. don't use the platform, do you? You, yeah. you? you just jump out there, don't you? Um, so everything had to stop while we brought the bomb disposal back in. Right. But as it turned out, is when the, when the device went off, the pressure... So everyone, there was different people blown up in there and people dropped things. Right. So when the bomb went off, the access chute from the pressure came up. Right. Somebody's, one of the passengers' rucksack went in and then it went back down. Bloody hell. You couldn't. If you, no. tried, if you tried to do that a million times, it wouldn't yeah. work, would it? 
And then we carried on a bit further and we come across some white um, solid polystyrene right. type material. So we again had to stop because we knew that they'd made their own explosives. And there was a fear that this white was just, not all of it had gone off. Right. But it turned out to be something to do with the the train tracks and stuff like that. Right. And you talk about the scene. The scene did then start to change. And this is where I think um, some of the uh, specialist officers were thankful we were there because a lot of the body parts that are still there started to get, um, started to glow with like a white furry phosphorus. Oh, bloody hell. What's that? Um, well, it's just the bacteria growing on the flesh. Right. Because that's part of the decomposition process, yeah. is it? And in the dark, you could they start just started to glow. Oh, mitt. Yeah. Made them easier to find, though. Oh, my God. This is so, horrific. Yeah, well, but this is this is why you need to have trained officers. Right. Did because... you did, did anyone say, or oh, by the way, no, um, <laughs> no, this is something you kind of learn as you can. Well, we hadn't done recovery for, in a tunnel for any, before. For anyone, for anyone listening to this who finds the fact that Jack and I are, are chuckling periodically, it's it's a nervous chuckle for me, and I'm sure it is for you as well. So it's not a sign of disrespect. This is not at all. This is just so, a coping mechanism, isn't yeah. it? And I, I can't emphasize enough that every part that we recover is done so that the relatives can get every part of their much of their loved one as possible and every part is um treated with respect however you and i and a lot of people who are not involved in most services it's wildly accredited now and there's there's peer papers written about um what the public would say would be black humor yeah, yeah. so again I won't all these all these objects or body parts I'm picking up were just that parts. I can't afford to do my job thinking, who was this? What do they do? Yeah. I can't, you can't, you would never get the job done if you did that way. So you have to keep in your mind what your job is, mm. and you have to have it that frame of mind. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of my ex-colleagues um was was at Tavistock Square and he was doing a very similar job to what you were doing mm. and he was recovering body parts that had gone up into the trees for god's sake yeah. and and he was using he was up there in a cherry picker um finding stuff and mm. and he was describing and this is you know probably a level of detail that's just too much but you know they were having to deal with 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 the wildlife you know with the oh, i wasn't going to go there with that yeah but that's a fact. It's a reality, it isn't is. it? Unfortunately, that um, the know, railways are full of rats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a horrible reality as well. So it's yeah, not not a not yeah. a just a, a dreadful dreadful kind of situation. We were slightly better off because we realised that we had wildlife down in the tunnel, but we always had something somebody down there moving, so it scared them off because we realised that if we if we shut it down and kept it with no one down there. They'd all come in, but yeah. we made sure that there was noise and things going on 24-7 whilst we were there. Oh, Matt. Mm. To scare them away. Um, yeah, so we did that. Um, worked the way through, We, you know, and then 
we then started getting queries because one of the things of any major disaster, and it's not a criticism, very quickly families get together mm. and in the army, in the, in the police, and in my current role, which I've been doing for 14 years now, there's this, un, I, I, I've never been in this situation, so I don't know what drives the, the, the family, but the family want to get to the exact spot where their loved one has passed. Mm. It's, like a, it's like a driving force. Mm. And I, you'd have to speak to somebody who's, who's had a, a loved one in that position because it's, it's just this drive to, to one, be there, and two, to know exactly what happened. And mm. also questions like, so for, um, I, had to do an, I had to do a statement as to why the body parts were being just left on the platform. And then I had to do a statement to explain, but it's not platform, it's a temporary, it's a temporary holding area. And why we didn't get um, refrigerated van in sooner. And then I had to do a statement to say, well, that's because we had to get the integrity of the channel tunnel check so that we could park vehicles over it. And these were questions that's now coming from relatives. So you've got a, a public, you've got the PR people coming to their own there, right. you know. And also we were quite fortunate, unlike Tavistock, is that the press want to have a, they want some of it. Mm. So we had to have PCs looking for any like rogue press trying to sneak in and take photos. Oh, bloody hell, what a nightmare. Yeah. What but we, we, nightmare. as I said, we settled down into it. Um, and then when the, when, when the body parts go to the morgue, they then do the D, they, they then get the, the pamphlet and then they will do DNA mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. And then that will be recorded so that all the parts that are spread out in the tunnel will eventually be able to, this is victim A, this is victim B. Yeah. And then the, the, yeah. whatever you got left. Yeah. So a um, couple of questions for me. Uh, firstly, if you've got a deceased, a victim who is, for want of a better word, largely intact. Yeah. Um, does that... Um, sort of body need to wait until it that grid is assigned to someone no. is, that, is that those larger larger exhibits um bodies um are they removed pretty much straight away yeah so anything because identification is a major thing um so we all work towards getting identifiable identifiable uh parts and bodies out first but again the problem is they they would they they came to to me and they said look we've got some pictures here of people who might be in here mm. could you ask you guys if they recognize somebody and i went well no <laughs> i said because we don't want to see faces and yeah. who, you know people because they're not people mm. they said what do you mean i said we don't the, what we're dealing with is body parts not people they're victims so we don't want to go down there and go, oh yeah, that looked like him. Because you've got this bright, you know, a picture from their Facebook. Yeah. And I said, not only that, as I, I I know from the chat, um, there's somebody down there that you could easily say that was um an ethnic minority. Right. But they're not. 
Right. But because of the blast and the yeah. blood, yeah, you could yeah. easily yeah. think that they were an ethnic minority. Right. Okay. But they weren't. So identification like that way, you're not going to do. And right. DNA is the only way that you could say right. that's them. That's interesting. And yeah. they learnt lessons. So, like the Marchioness, oh, not the Marchioness, the Herald of Free Enterprise, they identified a guy through his wallet and his jacket. And his his loved one was told that you know, unfortunately, you you, you know, your husband, dad's dead. But he turned up in a, a, a hospital. Right. And when he came round on that, and they asked him on the boat, he'd had his jacket stolen. Right. Lockerbie. A victim went to Canada and a victim went to Germany, but they were the wrong bodies because they identified them by their dental records and they just happened to have nearly identical dental work. Right. So DNA was the way to make sure we didn't have all these mistakes that are happening. Right. Okay. And the second, the other question I wanted to ask was, um, again, this is going to the overlap between the role that you guys have and the SO13 exhibits officers who are looking to retrieve, um, I suppose, as a priority fragment of the bomb to say, okay, what 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 was this? Um, and and uh, so there's going to be presumably um, a significant forensic overlap between body parts and pieces of the bomb, isn't yeah. there? Now, so, we quickly established a, a protocol because we would recover a body part with some wiring or bit of metal in it. Right. So they would, they would, we still recover it the same way, but then SO13, because I, I, I never dealt with the mortuary, but SO13 in the mortuary, we'd identify these as significant evidence parts. Hmm. So when it went to the mortuary, they would prioritize those for. DNA, but also to get the metal or whatever it was in it right. separated so that they could do okay. the, their side of it. And, and just um, for people listening who don't understand the unbelievably detailed, meticulous work that goes on with these crime scenes, uh, the counterterrorism branch, counterterrorism branch, or this counterterrorism um, network. Now it's all changed, isn't it? All the names have changed, mm. but the, the function remains the same. They will literally recover every single piece of that bomb and uh, and pretty much put it back together again, won't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And and they will be aided with this, as, as you can imagine, all the all the body parts being recovered. They'll build up the picture in the 3D image and they'll be able to go in you could virtually go into the virtual image with glasses on yeah and then as as you're doing all the you could see these parts went that way this part went that way so you could get you would get the forensic sight of how the bomb went right and how it went off it's absolutely fascinating on that side of it so let's just talk a bit about the kind of welfare implications of managing a deployment of that nature. So this is something that's going to go on for three bloody weeks. Oh my God, I can't even imagine it. Um, and you've got a team of, uh, what, about a dozen, did you say, about a dozen? So we, we initially started, we went there, called out six, but then other people were come and seconded to us. So we had about 14, 15 guys. So we had a core team. 
-hmm. And then we had guys and girls that came out to us and did, say, three or four days, and then somebody would take over from them. Right, okay. Um, and what are the challenges for you as a manager in, in, in managing uh, the human impact, I suppose, on all of those individuals in, the, in those teams? So there's certain things. So um, post the whole event, there was, quite, there, were, there was a number of officers, not just, not with me, through the whole event that ended up getting medically retired because they had issues, PTSD and all the rest of it. Hmm. And so as a, as a man, as a supervisor or manager, it's strange. What, what I'm looking for is personality changes. Right. So you get, you'd be down there and I'm not going to go into um, black humor, hmm. but there's people act in certain ways. Yeah then you'll come down and all of a sudden somebody be acting in a way and you'll see Billy or Jenny sort of being quite quiet, mm. not saying much. And then sort of you're, you're sort of giving instructions and they go, so what? And you think, right, we need to take them aside because right. it's a sign that it's starting to affect them. Right. We had one officer that quite quickly very enthusiastic you know wanted to get into this this is what he's trained for but within three days he was making excuses to do stuff out you know I'll, I'll take the things and he was he was changing his role right avoiding it and he was back at the hotel because we stayed in right in central london all the people involved um he wasn't interacting with us mm -hmm. So very quickly, and because you'll know yourself, there's this bravado as, oh, I'm fine. Mm. So you have to look for subtleties and be mm. blunt with them. And so you, you that is personality changes mm. and watching how people act is is your main thing. And who's looking out for you when you're doing that for them? Um, I would say that the other guys around me, because part of the team, although I'm an inspector, mm. Everyone's in it together. So at the end of each night, same as we did on the TSG family, mm. you have a quick debrief. Right. Okay. Now they're brutal. Mm. Uh, anyone on the TSG would tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's um, what do they call it? Ch Chatham House rules. Yeah. So at the end of the, when we're shutting down and we're going to go back, because we were working 16 hours days initially mm -hmm. and um so we get together and say right go around and in those debriefs you can say what you like mm. with no recrimination and somebody will say look i'm not happy about how you're doing this and you it's can rank, be really critical. it's a rank free environment oh it's, it's everything free environment mm. and i you know they could turn around and say well jack you, you know i didn't like the way that you kept you keep on sidelining me or whatever mm. i'll go all right and so you have it out mm -hmm. once the once the debrief's finished that's it you don't talk about it again you sort it out there and in that you can also you know and, and people would say they'll go yeah billy are you all right because you're acting really strange i think you know i think this is affecting you no no i'm fine and somebody else no billy you're not you need let's have a chat about it you know, so everyone's, and they would say to me that, 
well, you're acting differently. Are you sure you're right? So there was a lot of that on the debriefs and stuff. Yeah. So you're um, uh, you're going home. I mean, you're in the hotel, but at some point you need a. Are you getting days off to, uh, during this period, or are you just cracking on? Are you are you having days off to kind of rest and recover? Oh, you've you've broken up. Oh, hold on. Um. So. Can you hear me all right now? Yeah, I think the link's gone a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you got, now. Got you back now. Um, so we would be put up in a hotel nearby, but literally we just go there. In the first week, we would just have about eight hours off and then straight back. And then the second week and that, it, we were doing sort of about 12-hour days. Mm -hmm. And we're just going there to sleep in that. Um, and again, part of that is because you can watch each other. Yeah. Uh, secondly, is you don't want to take this back to your family. Yeah. Because you go back and then if you went back to your own, because none of us live far away. Well, that was going to be my next question. Because at some point in time, obviously this, uh, the scene is you've done your job, you've done the job that you're there to do. The scene is uh, closed down and you then go back to your previous life. I mean, I can't imagine what that must've been like. I mean, did you find that difficult to readjust back to being your sort of, Inspector Frost at Greenwich and going home to what I mean, did you have did you have kids? Did you have, were you found? Did you have a family? I, I have got I did have young kids at the time. Mm -hmm. Um me personally, um uh, I was fortunate because my wife was in the job. Right. She was a police officer. So you can have she, that to discussion. So she gets it. Yeah. I think one little <laughs> One little consequence is that shortly after, well, um, probably about a couple of days after I got there, I had some time off. And so I, I, I took my, I picked up my daughter from school. Yeah. She must have been about six. Hmm. And the teacher said, can I have a word with you about your daughter? I said, well, what's she done now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, well, we did this, we've, we, we had a little like project where we asked everyone to do a painting oh, of their daddy at work. Oh, God, I dread to think what's coming here. Right. And I went, okay. <laughs> so she showed me this painting and it was just black bin liners with <laughs> legs and arms. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which horrified the teacher. Oh and not that I'd talking to my daughter about it, but because I've been talking to my wife, she had obviously been upstairs on the landing listening to our chat. So that was another thing that I had to realise. It's so hard to, you have to be so careful, you know. Um, oh, it was no big deal for my daughter, but I think it shocked the school a bit. Oh, the, other, no. the other anomaly is, I mentioned to you that um, the coroner said that body part was one centimetre squared, yeah. but we, we ended up with... A substantial amount of residue, should we say? So there was a discussion: what do we do with all the residue? Mm. And the, you had the residue at all the other sites, yeah. Which which wasn't identifiable. It could be it could be tendons or this sort of stuff. Oh, God. So they by then they liaised with the families, and I think there was a discussion where the family said, "Well, if you just give everyone a bit to put in the coffin," but we went. That's fine, but part of that's the terrorist. Yeah. And they went, yeah. oh, we don't want that. 
But then they decided maybe once this is all over, outside um, uh, the station, King's Cross, we could have a memorial and the residue could be in the memorial. And somebody said, yeah, but then it will still be part of the terrace, so it'll also be a shrine. Oh, God. And as I understand, they had a Cobra meeting. Part of the Cobra meeting was to decide what they're going to do with the residue. And they decided whatever they decided can't be revealed for 100 years. They put a, a government notice on it. Oh, my God. Well, so, you know, there's certain things in life, aren't there, yeah. that just go into a box called there is no there is no answer yeah. really there is no answer that you know yeah. and and uh, yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a fascinating point isn't it and there's there's so many it overlaps with the whole world of ethics and you know uh, the 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 biology of it and the legalities there's so many moving parts to that discussion aren't there mm. um and and actually uh, to to our immense credit as a nation, I think we have set the standard for how we deal with the aftermath of these types of mm. ma mass casualty um, attacks or uh, you know disasters, and and, it, and it's in marked contrast to the way that they're dealt with in other countries. And I had a colleague who shall remain nameless but uh, he went out to the scene of a mass casualty terrorist attack out in uh, i'm probably going to get this wrong one of the southern south asian countries anyway I, I can't remember which country it was and he went out there on behalf of the counter-terrorism network to liaise with local law enforcement and to facilitate the repatriation of any British victims, I think that was his role. Mm. And and literally, the bodies had been bulldozed into a kind of yard and, and thrown just in a huge pile of black mm. polythene bin liners. And that was the extent of it. Um, yeah. and, and you contrast that approach with what you've just described. It's like, it's like night and day, isn't it? It is. And so one of the pluses of that incident that there wasn't any CBRN involved because right. that had been a whole new ball game had it been a contaminated scene well yeah again you can't even imagine the, the complexities of that the mm. the physical discomfort of having to operate in that environment wearing mm. a CBRN suit um yeah I mean it's just mm. terrific and, and again we're seeing a lot of this aren't we uh, Sadly, um, because of what's going on in Israel and, and Gaza at the moment, you, you think they're operating in a in a an environment that we can't even we can't even begin to imagine it. Can we? Mm. But um, so post any especially that incident, but post any incident as a as a body recovery officer or DVI, is uh, you get offered counselling. Right. So the problem with counselling, you do get quite a few personalities go well, i don't need counseling oh, i'm all right mm. and you can't force anyone to have counseling no however in the and i don't know if it's still to date because i've been out of the met for 13 14 years 
in our case is everyone was offered counseling and they but if you didn't want to take it that was fine mm. but you could never be deployed again oh. unless you had counseling oh, okay so you, if you said no i'm not having it you'll be taken off the you you'd be taken off the team yeah i'm quite right too actually i think you know i'm again i'm no expert on counseling but it seems to me that you can't yeah. you can't in all honesty put human beings into a situation like mm -hmm. that uh, and expect that there's not going to be some sort of collateral damage isn't there and one of the seedier sides i found of the incident is that um at the, at the hotel that we stayed at it came quite apparent there was one or two journos or journalists mm -hmm. that were in the hotel and that would with, sit near you at breakfast yeah, yeah. or at the bar to listen into your conversation or even try and get friendly with you. And mm -hmm. that was another thing that you had to warn people about and make people aware because yeah. the ordinary person would think, well, oh, they wouldn't do that. Well, they would, mm. you know. But, um, yeah, so that the whole thing out of it, um, I think the most significant for me is obviously the public's reaction, especially as it was to do with, like, ISIS and all the rest of it. Mm. What I think would have been, I don't think anyone realises that the public's reaction wasn't as bad as it could have been. Because on the Edgware Road, when Khan was waiting for the trains, he let the first, he got the train he got, the one before it, if he had come down earlier and got the one before it, it was full of kids going to school. And the thing about, came apparent to us was on the seven sevens there was no children right now that would put a different twist for everyone i think it would for the public in their horror yeah and also as i said you you're, you're only you're picking up victims yeah but had it been a, a train full of kids i think it would have made a completely different ball game yeah, I mean, I I think my own my own memories of that um, attack was that I think there was a, a real just sense of deep sense of outrage and shock. But you're you're right, you know. I think if there'd been if that had been a carriage full of kids, it would have been a, on a whole different level. But it would have. But yeah. but, uh, but without it, without any shadow of a doubt, um, you know that I'm as I said, I'm working on a working to support a a BBC. Um, production company uh, doing a uh, a documentary series on the seven seven and the twenty one seven. Well, the twenty one sevens people don't they forget about that? Yeah, absolutely. You Particularly know. as you know, these things are incredibly fresh in our minds, aren't we? Because that's because we're 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 old buggers, aren't we? Mm. Um, but there's a whole generation of of younger people now, and when I say younger, not that young. They're probably in their early twenties, but who have got no recollection, no understanding of all of this stuff no. at all. And yet it was really not that long ago, actually. I mean, mm. it was, but it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, 20, years. it'll be 20 years, won't it? So the, I think the, the, the yeah, 20th anniversary will be, you know, in a couple of years time. But, um, but listen, Jack, um, that, that was absolutely fascinating and grueling all at the same time. Um, I, I learned a lot. I, th I, th this is the thing I, I really enjoy about this podcast is that doing it is I I learned so much 
every time I speak to um, a new guest. And I thought I understood this world pretty well, and I do compared to most people, but I, I've, you've taken my understanding of what goes on with these scenes to a whole different level. And I'm, I'm very grateful to you for doing that. And I'm very grateful to you for your, your honesty. Um, and just again, to kind of reiterate the point that, um, you know, if we were like not laughing, it was, it was not a disrespectful thing. Um, we, you know, we, we feel deeply, deeply sad for the people who lost, lost families mm -hmm. and loved ones during that attack and, um, not, nothing can ever, nothing can ever bring them back. Um, so, uh, uh one little thing to add on to add on to that people need to realize that within an organization like the police so i was talking to a family liaison officer because in the police we have family liaison officers yeah so we had officers that were liaising with the families of the victims mm. and i was talking to, to to one of them and i and i she turned around to me and said god i couldn't do your job there's no way could I do what you're doing? And yeah. I went, there's no way I could do your job because <laughs> there's no, because it would be emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So dealing with the families face to face and they'll be telling you all about what their loved one was like yeah. would just break me. Yeah. Whereas for her dealing with the body parts would break her. Yeah. So within an organization, everyone has things that you think, well, that's easy, but it's not. Yeah. It, it takes certain characters to do certain yeah. roles within an organization. Yeah. yeah, it's a really, really good point. And and I can tell listening to the way that you kind of um described what you had to deal with, you describe it in such a a professional um but matter of fact kind of way, um, which is absolutely that is absolutely the sort of person you want to do that job. Mm. You don't you don't want someone who's gonna be um, you know, breaking down into floods of tears within five minutes of walking into a crime scene. Mm. They're, they're no good to you whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, it's horses for courses, isn't it? But um, listen, my friend, um, well done. Well done for everything you did in your career. Um, that must have been... Um, you didn't appear to find it difficult to talk about, but I'm 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 under no illusion that that these things, um, you know, that will that will have brought back some very uncomfortable memories. I'm quite sure, if not if not sort of very obviously, probably at a deep psychological level. So thank you very much for um, sharing all of that with me, um, and you know, I wish you the very very best in your future. And I mean, my God. The fact that you're still working as a paramedic or in the emergency med medicine is a testament, I think, to you must have ice cold water running through your bloody veins, you know. I think it's just knowing where to put things in your head. I mean, obviously, within the ambulance service, we had COVID, which was challenging in its own right. Mm. And um, especially, you know, um, with wet went on that. So that was another adventure that uh, yes. we go through. Well, that's another whole. That's another whole podcast, isn't it? Well, it is. Well, I spent. Um, if you ever do it, I I, I was in a coma. Were you? Mm. Uh, are you? Uh, oh, okay, right. So not only were you dealing with people with COVID and seeing the the human cost of that, but then you ended up getting really, really ill yourself. Yeah, I was intensive care for in a coma, and it took me about seven months to recover. 
Oh, mate. Well, you know, I don't know what to say to that. Other than well, no, no, it's, it, but, no, no, but thank God. Thank God you survived and, and here you are today looking uh, about 20 years younger than you reasonably should. <laughs> yeah, but it's, there's lots of things that I, I'm quite interested in because I did a whole programme with Channel 4 about the Mary Rose. Right. Um, and um, if you ever lost for us, I mean, I know it's personal talking, and mm. but there's a, I take, great store in uh, historical events that no one knows about yeah, yeah. and in your musings on readings mm. just look up the story about around the um hms lancastria oh, okay the second d-day all right okay sorry not second day second dunkirk right okay it's miss lancastria yeah which is still to date the largest British loss of life ever. Really? Maritime, oh, yeah. And yet I'd never even heard of it. But you wouldn't done because without getting into it, Churchill and the government put a hush notice on it. Yeah. Because it they didn't want the whole public had enough bad news. Affected the morale of the country. Yeah. But it's a story that's just itching to be told. Oh wow. Excellent. Well listen, um, I'll be in touch probably because um, we did, I did touch on that. I'm, I'm, I spoke to um, my contact from the BBC yesterday um, just to see where we, where we are with the project. And um, but I think what you've described today would make for really compelling viewing as well, actually. So um, I'll, I'll I'll maybe put you guys in touch if that, if you're okay with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. If you can point them, if you on YouTube, hmm. if you put in Mary Rose the Lost Files. Right. You can see what I did on that. Oh, brilliant. Oh, mate. Listen, Jack, you've been an absolute star. Thank you ever so much um, for your time and your honesty. And uh, I think I need to go and have a lie down or a gin and tonic or something like that. That was pretty grueling. <laughs> All right, mate. Listen, um, I'll add you to the very, very long list of people I need to buy a pint for. No worries. <laughs> I, I, hope it, I hope it. you go on to more success with this sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's doing well. And um, yeah, it's a bit sporadic at the moment just because I've had a lot going on with work and stuff, but I'm going to get back on it again. And I think people enjoy it. And uh, certainly the the reaction to the one I put out um, the other day with Sarah Charm and talking about the reason why so many people are resigning from the police at the moment has had a phenomenal response. So, so yeah, listen, thanks a million. Okay, no. uh, God bless. Thank you for everything you've done. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross at some stage. In the future. I'm sure they will. I'll buy you a pint. <laughs> take it easy you bye. Take bye 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 I thought it'd be a good idea just to uh, give you my thoughts on that um, I find it absolutely fascinating um, and quite grueling I know I use that word quite a lot sometimes but I think really for me that was pretty much the only word that would describe that uh, unbelievable really that I'd been in the job for 30 years. Um, I kind of, you know, at a at a sort of a vague intellectual level, knew that people did that job, but I hadn't really given it much thought. And I certainly hadn't really put myself in the place of, of someone who's doing it and to sort of go through that situation in a chronological way and um, and actually sort of put yourself in Jack's shoes or the shoes of 
the colleagues working with Jack to do that job. I really massively take my hat off to to him and to anyone who's prepared to do that job. And if anyone sort of is sitting there listening to this and thinking, you know, it's in really bad taste that you're going back over this stuff. And I did really, uh, I did really challenge myself about whether that was just too much to put out in a podcast. And I spoke to, um, you know, a few people whose judgment I really trust. And I think we all agreed that provided you give the health warning at the start, which I did. And, um, you know, it's really up to, it's up to people to decide whether they want to listen to that or not. And, um, the reality is that 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 job has to be done by someone whether you like it or not it needs to be done by someone and we should all feel incredibly grateful that there are people who are prepared to do that job i um i really reflected as well on the fact that jack had not wanted to know the identity of any of the people who died at Edgware Road to this day. And I find that really fascinating. And I just don't know quite what to make of it, really. Um, at the end of the day, everybody's going to cope with these sort of situations in their own way, I suppose. But um, yeah, I find that was interesting. And it'd be interesting to know what what a, a psychologist would make of that, whether that's just Jack's own way of, of dealing with that or whether that would be a common response to having to do a job like that. I don't know. But um, but anyway, before I wrap up, I thought it would be useful just to briefly talk about a couple of things that have been going on in the news in the last uh, few weeks, which... Uh, I just wanted to touch on. So the first one of these is the massive furore, uh, the hoo-ha, that has been caused by the GoFundMe page, which has been set up by an anonymous person to raise money for the two officers who were sacked uh, following a finding of gross misconduct in their dealings with the athlete Bianca Williams and her um, her partner uh, Ricardo de Santos who's also a an athlete um, just worth uh, just kind of going back over the brief circumstances of that incident uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it um, so this is this goes back to July 2020 and uh, the brief circumstances are that Williams and DeSantos were returning from a training session uh, and they were in the company with their uh, very young son. Um, and for reasons that I'm not aware of, um, they were stopped by the police. Uh, the police alleged that there'd been some, I think, uh, dangerous driving or failure to stop, that's my understanding anyway. And uh, the long and the short of it is that they were both detained 
um, and searched. And the whole thing was uh, videoed on a mobile phone, which is often the case with these things in this day and age. Um, I think they were searched on suspicion of possession of drugs and uh, ultimately nothing was found and they were both uh, released. They then um, uh, sued the Met and uh, the Independent Office of Police Complaints got involved. Uh, have they sued the Met? I'm not sure. Anyway, they made a complaint and um, the complaint was investigated by the IOPC. Um, so there's a really uh, depressing series of issues here which kind of goes to the heart of the relationship between the Metropolitan Police and particularly the black community in London and, and something that I've talked about many many times on this podcast and written about in the book and I'm just not quite sure how you square the circle of um, very very significant numbers of uh, young people dying involved in knife crime, uh, gang related violence, many of whom are young black children who are being uh, murdered uh, frequently uh, by other young black children, young people, and the necessity to try and stop that. Now I know that in this particular instance, this was not about knife crime. This was a uh, search under the Misuse of Drugs Act and um, and it all went horribly wrong, really. I suppose the, so what do I, what do I think about this? I think the thing that makes me really uncomfortable with this, uh, these actions by the IOPC, is that my understanding is that this whole matter had been investigated twice before and no findings of um, misconduct had been uh, identified. And the previous commissioner, uh, Dame Cressida Dick, gave evidence to the Home, Home Affairs Select Committee uh, in response to questions about this incident and she reassured them that the whole matter had been fully investigated and that um, there was there was no nothing uh, in terms of misconduct. And yet here we are sort of three years on and the whole matter has been dragged up again and not only have they identified um, alleged misconduct but they've also uh, categorised that as gross misconduct and then there's been a finding of guilt where both officers have been sacked. So it just seems a little odd to me that you can have a situation where something like this can be um, investigated twice and then reinvestigated and a completely different outcome has been uh, made. And you do wonder what has driven that. Is that the, uh, is that a, a sort of a, uh, is that, that new evidence has emerged? Um, I don't imagine it has been because the whole thing was, was sort of filmed pretty much from start to end. Um, has, the, has the political climate changed? Um, possibly. But uh, the GoFundMe thing um, has been set up and to, to my, my understanding is that it's raised 
in a very short period of time, something like £120,000 for these officers. Um, and, you know, this has then generated a lot of negative commentary around uh, the Met Police again, because uh, people like Bianca Williams and uh, others and her solicitors from Bindman's and Bindman's have got a long track record of of representing these sorts of cases. Um, Bindman's solicitors. And of course, they will say, well, this just proves that the Metropolitan Police are unapologetically racist. Whereas I think if you spoke to most police officers, they would say, no, 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 this is not about racism. This is about fairness. Um, the matter was investigated twice. Uh, the officers were not deemed to have done anything wrong. And now they've been, um, they've lost their jobs. And that, I think to many police officers, um, past and present seems to be very unfair. I mean, I've been in those situations many, many times where uh, you have stopped someone who has not done anything um, blatantly criminal. Um, they're not wanted for any criminal offence. Uh, there's no intelligence uh, linking them to any criminality. But when you stop them, um, their demeanour uh, raises concerns and suspicions. And I suppose um, my, my kind of general advice, I suppose, to younger officers, less experienced officers is treat, I mean, I'm probably stating the blindingly obvious here, but you need to be really, really careful when you're dealing with those types of situations when, when you're not quite sure exactly what you've got. And, and I would say, particularly if there's a very young child um, with with the people that you're stopping, because the, the kind of welfare of that child um, trumps every other consideration. I would suggest. Um, and I know there'll be people out there and say, well, you know, drug dealers uh, frequently hide drugs on, on babies and children. And yeah, I know that. I know that. And, and that's despicable when that happens. But I would just urge you to be ever so careful with dealing with these types of incidents because um, in this current climate you're almost on a hiding to nothing and um, you know I'm not going to give an, an opinion as to whether they what the officers did was right or wrong because I wasn't there. Um, my issue is the fact that we now seem to be in a situation where um, if you don't like the findings of the first or even the second investigation, um, if there's political pressure that they keep pushing and pushing and pushing, then there seems to be a willingness to then cave in, um, call that a form of appeasement, call it what you want. Um, but it just doesn't feel quite right to me. And Finally, the, the other thing is the announcement that uh, the officer who shot Chris Cabba, who's known by their pseudonym NX121, and I talked about this in a previous podcast a few episodes ago, um, a decision has been made to name that officer publicly as opposed to let them use a pseudonym. Um, that is going to cause a lot of anger amongst 
firearms officers. And we know that many hundreds of them already handed in their guns uh, when the decision was made to charge that officer with murder. Um, so we shall watch that with interest just to see what happens. Um, but yeah, still a lot of unhappy stuff going on in policing, I'm sorry to say, and would really like to um, sound slightly less despairing every time I do one of these podcasts, but there you go. Right, I'll leave you to it. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town.